This show is dedicated to the men and women of law enforcement. Episode number 66 of the Urban Shooter Podcast. Welcome to the Urban Shooter Podcast, the weekly show for law-abiding, fun-loving gun owners of the city. And here's your host, Ken Blanchard. You've survived another week. Thank you for joining me again on the Urban Shooter Podcast. You know I love doing this, and I love how things are going. I'm actually learning how to um, get my music together, my illegal music how to get my uh, notes together and my thoughts together to just be better for you. You're my audience. You're you're my main man. I am so glad you and you are listening. You too, sister. I'm not forgetting you either. I really appreciate you and those who are supporting the show and keeping me on the air. Let's get started. This episode has been sponsored and supported by members of the Urban Shooter Association. Once upon a time, I wore a badge and a uniform. I carried a Glock. I held the rank of lieutenant in a federal police department that protected the nation's secrets, personnel, and property. A glorified guard, maybe, to some. But I also had the collateral duties as a firearms instructor, a defensive trainer, and a facilitator. I traveled around the world in protection of people. It was a different time than it is now. Yearning to start my own business, I sought to be a firearms trainer for John Q. Public. I had been trained by the U.S. Marine Corps, the U.S. State Department, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and several Special Forces instructors detailed to the intel community. But I wasn't hooked into the National Rifle Association. By design and purposely were kept out of the political realm of the right to keep and bear arms. I knew tactics. I knew close-quarter combat. But I didn't know the racist roots of gun control. The heroes, nor the villains, that prevent you and I from exercising our rights. Seeking to expand my horizons, after becoming, after paying my own way, a certified NRA instructor, and receiving all that literature that you get, I decided to check out a board meeting of the NRA that was being held in Arlington, Virginia. It was there that I met the executive director of the Law Enforcement Alliance of America, James J. Fotis, who, with the help of Richard Feldman of the American Shooting Foundation back then, and then NRA board member Jim Church of Michigan, they opened my eyes to a world I had missed. You know, we assume that police know all the laws. I knew the right of search and seizure. I knew the rights and the laws 
of lethal force. But the gun laws, I didn't necessarily know. We know cover your own A. We know to come home at the end of your shift. We know to follow the daily logs. I didn't know how much history and background involving the gun control movement that I didn't know. I didn't know how much I didn't know. Or how much involved people that looked like me. Ashamed but eager to learn, I became obsessed with learning about guns and the race issue. My three new friends helped. I soon met Ted, who is now like a brother to me. He's the ops officer for LAAA, and which has streamlined this operation right now because folks, in all honesty, don't give like they used to to any cause nowadays, but the association is still alive. Consider joining us if you haven't heard of us before. Or if you've thought we've died, we haven't. There's also links and info on the U.S. podcast show notes that you can check out. That's urbanshooterpodcast.com. On the show notes there, you'll find links to joining the LEAA. On this show, Ted and I will debunk the most popular gun control myths that have to do with police. The Law Enforcement Alliance of America is the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan coalition of law enforcement professionals, crime victims, and concerned citizens united for justice. With a major focus on public education, LAAA is dedicated to providing hard facts and real-world insights into the world of law enforcement and the battle against violent crime. LEAA fights at every level of government for legislation that reduces violent crime while preserving the rights of honest citizens, particularly the right of self-defense. Law Enforcement Alliance of America, 5538 Port Royal Road, Springfield, Virginia, 22151. Or on the web at leaa.org. On this segment, we play the devil's advocate. And I ask Ted questions that maybe non-gun owners or those new to the show may wonder about regarding police officers and their viewpoints. Let's check it out. And once again, I have my brother Ted with me, and we're going to be talking about law enforcement and the police. Man, if... If I was a, a regular guy in the city and I was just wondering about this whole gun thing, do I really need a gun? Well, if you want to have the right to choice at the moment of truth, uh, the gun is the most effective tool when a person faces somebody uh, bent on evil purposes, whether you're big or little, fat or thin. Uh, all the evidence and all the government data suggests that active armed resistance with a firearm is the most effective means of stopping somebody who has uh, evil intent, whether that evil intent is to kill you, or rape you, or rob you, or kidnap you, 
Uh, if you find yourself in that uh, unfortunate circumstance, uh, I think a person, a citizen, is uh, well advised to uh, have a couple of choices. And guns, guns save lives, and uh, they are really, for those folks who are pro-choice, they are the ultimate form of uh, freedom of choice, ability to choose your own life. Yeah, but if you're in a city, we got the police. Ah, uh, well, there can comes the the big lie of the way uh, the public's taught and uh, what they see in the media. Everybody in law enforcement knows that even though individual officers would like to do everything they could to stop a crime from being committed, in the vast majority of cases, officers are unable to arrive in the time to stop the crime from being committed. In other words, most of the time they arrive after the crime has been committed. I did a uh, radio show after there had been a survey done on sex between men and women, and it found that the average time for intercourse for a husband and wife was something like seven minutes. And that was very interesting because in our brief... Yeah, our brief to the Supreme Court, we cited a number of jurisdictions where the average police response time for priority calls was 7 minutes, 8 minutes, 10 minutes, 11 minutes, 13 minutes. And so when you put that in perspective, if you look at a place like Washington, D.C., that has a uh, probably one of the worst emergency dispatching systems in the country, you have to call, you have to get through dispatch, you have to have dispatch, dispatch a unit. The unit has to drive to wherever you are, they have to mark out, they have to do take whatever their appropriate police action. And if you just think about it from a common sense perspective, if you're thinking about a robbery, if you're thinking about somebody taking a pot shot at a loved one, uh, you don't have eight minutes, you don't have 11 minutes, you don't have 15 minutes. Usually you have to deal with a problem uh, right here and right now, and, and if you want the choice, the guns are the most effective choice you can have. So, your position is what regular cops would think, or just just a few cops? <clears throat> no, when you get down to the officer on the street, the way to tell how they really feel, and the question that the mainstream media never asks is, for an officer who's been on the street, how would you like to see the following scenario end? There's two possible outcomes. One is the intended victim uh, has the ability to defend themselves, and when the officer arrives, the perpetrator is dead, injured, or prone out on the ground for the officer to arrest. That's scenario one. Or in scenario two, the civilian relies only on the telephone. By the time the officer arrives, the victim has been raped, robbed, murdered, and the perpetrator in the wind. If you ask probably north of 98% of officers who are on the street, in fact, I've never asked, never talked to an officer in all the years I've done this who's been on the street, who says that they would prefer the second outcome to the first. So people who respond every day to crime would rather that the good guy be alive and the bad guy be on the ground than to have the good guy on the ground and the bad guy having departed for points unknown. So where the rubber really meets the road, 
law enforcement officers, uh, when they're sworn into their job, they're sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. And as a matter of personal integrity, most of them want to make make the country better, make their community safer. And those who have any time on the street at all uh, really want to see the good guy win and the bad guy lose. Now, as a matter of politics, when you have a place, let's just take Washington, D.C., for example, when you have a political mayor who gets to pick who the police chief is and the political mayor decides that his uh, political bread is buttered by being anti-gun and supporting you know, anti-gun policies, then that mayor's chief of police is going to follow the lead of his boss because he knows if he doesn't, he's going to get fired. So when you see a liberal politician standing up there supported by the local chief of police, who the politician has the ability to fire or hire, it's no doubt that the chief of police is going to say whatever his political master uh, tells him to say. So folks who watch the evening news see these chiefs of police uh, spouting whatever stupid crap uh, the politicians are spouting, and there's not a dime's worth of difference between many of them and the politician, and people believe that's the way America's law enforcement thinks. But when you ask them, you say, well, wait a minute, don't you know a police officer in your congregation? Don't you know somebody who's got a law enforcement background in your uh, scouts or in your club or your association? And the people will say, oh, yeah, I know Bob and well, how does Bob feel? Well, Bob feels the same way I do. Well, yeah, it's because Bob's on the job and Bob's on the street. So there's a world of difference between what the average officer on the street, the guy who's responding to calls, how those officers feel versus the political ones who have to take a political position. And it's very interesting in the case before the Supreme Court, the Heller case, uh, the mainstream media did not report that amongst all the different briefings that came together to support the Second Amendment, there were 92, let me say that again, 92 different law enforcement voices in favor of the Second Amendment before the Supreme Court. Now, the mainstream media didn't report on any of that, but I have the breakout here so you and your listeners can be more well-informed. Of the 92, there were 11 law enforcement groups that represented literally tens of thousands of officers from all across America. There were 31 states' top cops, the attorneys generals, so the top cop in the states, 38 different prosecutors, district attorneys, or CLEOs, which are chief law enforcement officers, and 12 United States Attorneys General, senior DOJ officials, and assistant United States attorneys, and including one who's from Washington, D.C., and a federal judge. So 92 different law enforcement voices came together in support of the basic question of, does the Second Amendment mean that you, uh, as as an inner city person in the District of Columbia, does the Second Amendment mean you have a right to own a gun, that you have a right to have that gun available uh, for self-defense, for protection of your family? And 92 different law enforcement voices came together publicly, signed their name on the dotted line to take that position, and yet nobody in the mainstream media uh, hardly uh, reported on that. There was, I think, World Net Daily did some coverage on it. I think CNS News did some coverage on it. 
and I think maybe some conservative bloggers did some coverage on it. But if you weren't plugged into those things and you were just watching the story, uh, the average American would never hear that uh, cops support the Second Amendment. Wow. So you think you think um, cops are afraid of the uh, concealed weapons holders or carriers? No. In fact, we're we're I guess the listeners need to know that we we've been involved in the right to carry. Both you and I and and the organization I represent tonight, the Law Enforcement Alliance of America have been involved in right to carry for oh, a decade and a half now. Every once in a while, you'll hear a, a police spokesperson um, who doesn't know about right to carry, and this was more true 10 or 15 years ago before kind of all the evidence was in. But back in the day, sometimes they would look at that and go, gosh, I'm nervous. If there's a lot of guys with guns, will there be uh, Wild West shootouts? Now, setting aside the fact that historically in the U.S., we never had those kind of shootouts, but <laughs> set that aside for a minute. They were worried that we would have them. Well, experience has borne out with now somewhere approximately about 3 million civilians with permits uh, that the crime rate is so statistically insignificant among those people, and very often those civilians with guns are helping to stop major crimes and save police officers' lives, that I don't think there's any uh, organized voice left in America uh, of rank-and-file officers that are uh, scared or uncertain of what's going to happen if good guys are allowed to carry guns. In other words, uh, there may have been a doubt 15 or 20 years ago but now that you fast forward and practically 40 states have some kind of right to carry, only two states have a prohibition on it, and the overwhelming data is in with, with about 3 million test cases uh, across the country. It's working really, really well. So I don't think there's really anybody left in an organized way within the law enforcement community that, uh, that opposes right to carry. Now, I'm not saying there's not police chiefs groups who oppose it, but they oppose it because they're told by their political masters, and uh, and they say, yes, sir, you know, how many bags full do you want? And that's what they do. What's up with, with New York and Chicago? I mean, why won't they ever get right? Why won't they ever get right? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons uh, for that, Ken. For, for the folks who don't know, New York's New York City's gun laws uh, go all the way back to a racist set of roots. It was called the Sullivan Act, and the powers that be back in the day decided that New York City would be a safer place if they could keep the guns out of the hands of certain uh, miscreants in society. And what that meant was people who weren't like them, people who who weren't of their culture or weren't of their color. And they passed the Sullivan Act in order to disarm the minorities who had no power. And that's the history. You fast forward from the Sullivan Act, and you have a place in the country where, uh, for all intents and purposes, law-abiding people are not empowered to fight back against the criminals. You see the same thing in Washington, D.C., uh, that has a complete prohibition on handguns for self-defense. You see the same kind of prohibitions in Chicago. And wherever you suppress good people from doing good things, wherever you suppress good people from being empowered, 
that means that you are empowering the bad people. And that's just kind of a philosophical statement. But the reality is, if the bad guys know that they can get away with the crimes, they're going to run rampant. And here's a thing that we put in our brief to the Supreme Court that I thought was very compelling. When you look at a place like the District of Columbia that's had a handgun ban and a self-defense ban in place for decade after decade after decade, and you look at that and you say, police in the District of Columbia were killed at a rate at about six times the national average. So in the District of Columbia, the nation's capital, with all the police, high population of police, with all the economic wherewithal, with all that, they put a gun ban in place, and they had the dubious distinction of having their officers killed at six times higher than the national average. So if you look at that and you go, but that that should suggest on its face that the gun bans are not working. The gun bans are not working to stop uh, the street crime. The gun ban is definitely disempowering the good guy from fighting back. And as a result, crime runs rampant, and even the cops are getting killed at a higher rate. You would think, at least I think, right. common sense would be if you try something and it fails and then you do more of the same thing, and it continues to fail, and then you do more of the same thing, and it continues to fail. Maybe somewhere in there, maybe about the third or fourth lap, you would say, hey, <clears throat> maybe this isn't working. Right. You know, D.C. got rid of handguns. They got rid of long guns that could be used for self-defense. They kept increasing the penalties and kept making it more and more strident until the point that you can't have a gun in D.C. effectively for, for self-defense. And they've tried at every one of these turns, and every time they turn the screws and drive the honest gun owners out of the district, they see more crime. And yet their answer in the media is, well, we have to do more gun banning. We have to do more of the same failed policy. And at, after some point, Ken, you have to look at it and say, that just doesn't make any sense. If you cross the river from the District of Columbia into Virginia, uh, you, know, you, you cross into a state that has the death penalty. You cross into a state that has uh, abolished parole, into a state that has uh, almost every other house has a gun in it. And uh, gosh, I don't even know what the statistics are right now, but hundreds of thousands of people carrying concealed firearms. And you have a, 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 a state where the crime is comparatively, uh, comparatively speaking, non-existent to the district. Right. And you go, well, what's the difference between one side of the bridge and the other side of the bridge? Well, one of the many differences is that we empower all of our people in the Commonwealth uh, to have fundamental equal right, the equal right to life, the equal right to self-defense. Right. One more thing is another, another great myth. How about the big cop killer bullet thing that it was big for a while? You know, it, it, that's a kind of a funny story on the one hand. It's sad on the other. Soft body armor was invented by, a, uh, made popular by a guy named Richard Davis, who's an LEA member. And he was a pizza guy, believe it or not, who was robbed and uh, survived a gunfight at close, close quarters. And that motivated him to become the father of soft body armor. When soft body armor became popular, 
a lot of folks didn't want to let the word out on the street that officers were wearing body armor for fear that the bad guys would start to shoot them in the head or below the body armor. And the mainstream media, of course, did a great job of revealing that you know secret new technology and made a big to-do about that. And then some bad guys started shooting officers above and below the body armor. So while the public media revealed this technology in such a way as to endanger police officers' lives, that was okay. But then comes along every few years uh, some nonsense about a cop killer bullet, which doesn't exist, uh, and the mainstream media jumps on that and talks about it in this kind of you know uh, breathless anticipation that, oh, my God, there's a bullet that can penetrate soft body armor. Well, yeah, uh, body armor is rated based on its weight and its thickness, which is how heavy it is and how easy it is to wear. And officers on the street tend to want to wear lighter, more flexible, cooler body armor. So they pick armor that's on the less strong scale to stop certain calibers uh, and guns and because they make an educated assumption that most of the bad guys are going to be shooting mostly these classes of guns. And so the officers wear that body armor. When somebody shoots at that body armor with a gun that's outside that power factor, the bullet can penetrate the body armor. And basically the mainstream media then runs around and starts hyperventilating, hyperventilating and talking about um, you know, these cop killer bullets. And they're not cop killer bullets, they're just plain old bullets being fired by bad guys and defeating the armor, just like the same bullets that the bad guys shot at the officers at their heads and at their groins when the media reported on the body armor. So the whole the whole issue of cop killer bullets by that term in and of itself is a, is a, is a great uh, misnomer, it's a lie, and it really uh, obscures the truth that A, body armor works, B, the mainstream media couldn't report something right uh, on guns and law enforcement to save their lives. Wow. Well, you got the one myth just kind of jumps on another. I was thinking about the um, the um, I had a senior moment there. I was talking about cop killer bullets, body armor, what other law enforcement thing can can we beat up on for a few minutes? Oh, what? I had mentioned this before, but cops have no legal responsibility to come into harm's way to protect you either. Well, that's right. There's a there are a series of court decisions uh, that have been passed down over the years, and then some states have actually adopted state statutory language. So court. A court decision is when a, when a jury or judge sits and finds that, an example, in Washington, D.C., a case where the police were not able to respond timely and save some victims, uh, the court ruled that the individual officers were not responsible for protecting those individual people. In other words, the department tries to protect the public at large, but that does not translate into civil liability for one officer to protect one individual citizen, then some states actually passed laws saying that the departments, the officers, did not have liability for that kind of protection. So what that means is a practical matter. While you're waiting for help in Washington, D.C., 
after after you've negotiated the 911 system and you're waiting the eight and a half minutes on average. Now, remember, an average means that's an average. That means sometimes it's a lot longer than eight and a half minutes and, of course, a lot longer to get through 911. But what that means in theory is, is that while you're waiting for that average response time to go by, you can't require, you can't expect that the officers will arrive and will arrive in time to save you from the would-be robber, rapist, killer, abductor, what have you, and that should they not arrive in time, uh, you are left to your own devices and you cannot sue them for their failure to act, for their failure to get there in time to save your wife from being raped, your child from being abducted, uh, what have you. And most people don't understand that as a matter of, of, of court process or of state legislative process. And even though individual officers are b very brave and very much want to save people's lives, the fact of the matter is most of the time they arrive in time to take uh, real pretty uh, crime scene pictures, to uh, do uh, statements and interviews, canvassing of the neighbors to see if they can collect information about the crime that went on. So the the reality of the officer swooping in at the moment of truth and stopping the rapist before he uh, violates your uh, your loved ones uh, is just a uh, it's a it's a fallacy. It doesn't really happen. Thanks, Ted. Talk to you next time, bud. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having us on. Do you like Urban Shooter? Then send Ken an email at blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. Do you want to support the show and start something new? You can become a member of the new Urban Shooter Association for $4 a month and keep the mission going strong. Look for the USA link on the website. Well, this concludes another episode of the Urban Shooter Podcast. I want to thank you for joining me again this week. Next week, we're going to get more technical. I plan to answer some questions, especially Tommy's question about keeping around in the chamber of his new Springfield Armory pistol. And, specifically, talk about holsters. Now you can pull those pistols and whistle Dixie. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for signing the Black Man with a Gun guest book. Michael, Tommy, Hawkeye, Anthony, Stefan, Eric, Mark. I appreciate you, brothers. Wayne, Jim, Bill. Reg, Scott, thanks, and consider joining up the Urban Shooter Association. Terry, Miss Ann, thank you so much, sister. Martin, Ed, Rory, Brian, Evan, and even Hugh, my artist, is doing our new membership cards. Thanks again to all those who protect and serve, both on the streets and in the big sandbox across the ocean. This is your friend and brother from a different mother wishing you a safe week. Peace. Be one of the few, the proud, the Marines.
Right here, right knee, left hand, let's sit up straight. 